You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Bible Prophecy Talk. Today will be an exciting episode. It's going to be me basically uh, shooting from the hip with some uh, research that I've been doing lately that I think is really important, and I think it'll be some stuff that maybe you haven't heard before. Uh, maybe you have, I don't know, but uh, in any case, I think it is really relevant to some of the other research that I've been doing and some of the stuff that I'll be putting in this upcoming book. It will probably be a while before I make a cohesive, uh, well-written statement about this, since the research is so early, but I just wanted to go ahead and basically get it off my chest, this stuff that I have been uh, learning about. Basically, it is Jewish eschatology, and I guess I should say modern Jewish eschatology, uh, because I think that in, in a real sense, we Christians believe in Jewish eschatology for the most part, but there is also a widely held version of the end times in the Jewish community that I don't think we know much about. And I recently did a podcast about the the, the prevalent view that I'm sure everybody's heard about if you're interested in Bible prophecy about Islamic eschatology. It's pretty much kind of the same thing in, in the sense that it, it's a lot of, you know, the Mahdi and, and the Dajjal and all this stuff that's, that's supposed to happen according to Muslim eschatology. I actually think that both modern Jewish eschatology, that is the, the end time scenario that has been really articulated in the Middle Ages with, you know, the Talmud and, and a lot of the, uh, what they call the sages, the, the people that have written um, uh, uh, after the time of the Bible, that they are basing a lot of their eschatology on. And I think that they actually play together in a way that is just plain scary. To summarize the thesis that I'll be talking about here, it's that the Jewish version of what they're waiting for uh, would be, I would argue, exactly what the Bible says the Antichrist will do. And and there are some really interesting things um, in this that I would like to sort of get off my chest and try my best to, to kind of put it all together. Um, so without any further ado, let me just first say that I have a ton of sympathy after reading a lot about Jewish eschatology and they're waiting on the Messiah. I mean, it's just a heartbreaking thing. All the things that the Jewish people have gone through, all the different uh, uh, persecutions and everything, it's just atrocious what they've been through. And their messianic beliefs in, in some measure, in large measure, have been shaped by that. You know, in a lot of ways, you know, a modern, really modern sort of liberal Judaism, they believe you know, they've kind of allegorized a lot of this to the point where even, you know, a very consistent view nowadays is that the Jews themselves are the Messiah, that that each individual is the Messiah and that they, you know, by social reforms and making the world a better place are going to make the world, you know, be the Messiah. That that There's a lot of that kind of stuff that, that's going on in modern Judaism. But really, I get the impression strongly from the people that I'm reading, the rabbis and so on, and really from, from everybody that even holds to those views, that there still is a strong sense that if any of the stuff starts to happen, they'll go right back to the what you know the the literal version of the Messiah. And I would say that Judaism, especially in its eschatology, is, is almost as diverse as um, as Christianity in terms of the particulars about how how everything will go down. So there's a lot of Jewish people that don't hold to that sort of liberal idea of like we are the Messiah, but 
but uh, in fact believe that the Messiah is coming. In fact, as I sort of alluded to, I think that even people that hold to a liberal version still have a very strong sense that a real Messiah, if it ever started to happen, would be easily uh, turned to. Um, but I think that it's because of a lot of the false messiahs that they've embraced over the years that that they have turned to this sort of there's a you know kind of liberal view in fact that's explicitly stated a lot of times every time they would embrace a false messiah like bar kokhba or something like that bar kokhba was an interesting one because it it kind of illustrates what they wanted jesus to do and which is to lead a military revolt that's a theme that we're going to see all the time they call this time the the birth pangs of the messiah i can't remember the jewish word for it but it's basically the time of of war um that is necessary to usher in the messianic age they believe strongly in the gog magog war for example and we'll talk a lot about that but bar kokhba was a military guy who led a you know semi-successful revolt against the romans but and he was wildly embraced, widely rather, embraced by the Jewish community at the time. This is about the, uh, I think it's like 117 AD, so it's not too far after the temple fell. But um, but anyhow, so the Romans eventually totally crushed the Jewish people after the Bar Kokhba revolt. And, you know, they, they after that, there was a lot of sort of trying to tone down this idea so that another Bar Kokhba didn't happen. Now, there were a lot more that did happen, and each time another one was embraced, then, you know, they would they would even put out, like, these decrees, and not maybe not decrees, uh, just sort of the teachings that would uh, explicitly try to minimize the idea of the Messiah to hopefully prevent these kinds of things that would happen when they would embrace these false military guys, or in the case of Sheb Type Z, you know, a guy that, that really wasn't a military guy, but more sort of the esoteric sort of type. But in any case, um, I would just say that that on this issue, it's interesting to note that they've always, or you know, historically embraced this military messiah who would lead them to uh, to a military victory over their enemies. You know, there was an interesting quote in uh, one of the, these books that I was reading by this rabbi who really was trying to do a pretty scholarly job of just sort of putting together a lot of the Jewish ideas and messianic ideas over the years. And um, and this is also true in a lot of other things. But they said this really interesting interesting thing about like, well, how will we know that it's not fake? You know, in talking about Bar Kokhba and these others. Okay, well, what are we? How can we be sure that when the Messiah really comes, that he won't be just another one of these pretenders? And they said, well, it's easy um, because all these other guys didn't actually do it. They didn't actually, you know, we'll know them by their fruits. Essentially, that if they actually do it then they're it. Now, they go on to say what doing it is. And it's two things. It is starting the temple sacrifices and defeating Israel's enemies in battle. Now, I don't think I have to convince very many people that uh, the starting of the daily sacrifices will be a part of the end time scenario, at least in the first three and a half years of that uh, seven-year period. Uh, The defeat of Israel's enemies in battle Unfortunately, uh, if you listen to this show, it'll be a familiar idea, but unfortunately not many people look at Daniel 11 and, well, th- they would they would exegete this correctly, I believe, if they if they did many studies on uh, Daniel 11, 40 through 45. But the Antichrist is a warring um, guy. He defeats the enemies of Israel just 
right there in black and white in those verses. It names Egypt. It names all the people in Jordan. It names the entire Arab coalition there. I mean, the Antichrist defeats the enemies of Israel, according to Daniel. But, but so, and, and again, we could debate about whether those verses and is uh, the two or three king theory. But I would say, regardless of what you think about that, I certainly think it's a two king theory, meaning that. Uh, well, I won't go into details, but basically he at least destroys um, Egypt and, and those that coalition of Arab nations down there. Um, even if you don't believe he also destroys the Arab coalition to the north and you think that he is the king of the north, whatever, uh, he also destroys those. Now, again, I could go into details that that king of the north in Daniel, you could see J. Paul Tanner's uh, work, uh, Daniel's king of the north, do we owe Russia an apology, in which he concludes that uh, to be hermeneutically consistent, we must view the king of the north as a coalition of Arab countries. Nevertheless, I think it's pretty darn clear. So, But that's not what I'm talking about. We're going to get into the interesting part here in a minute, but I'm just sort of laying some preliminary groundwork. So they say that that the, the way that they will know the Messiah when he actually comes is he will start the sacrifices and he will defeat Israel's enemies in battle. This is also, they tie into this, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is an interesting thing. There's some, some talk about how the Ark will be one of these signals that, uh, that the Messianic age is upon them. It's interesting because in Islam, in, in the Islamic eschatology about, you know, the Mahdi and everything else, one of the things that they're all waiting for is the Ark to be found too, because that signifies to the Muslims that it's now time to start to go to war with Israel. Because, and, um, you know, I went into this a little bit before, but basically the Islamic version of the end times requires them to go to war with what they believe the Antichrist is, what they call the Dajjal. And the Dajjal, according to Islamic uh, eschatology, is the uh, a man starts to act like the Messiah to the Jews, the Ark of the Covenant, and all this stuff starts to happen. And it is a absolute requirement. It's kind of one of these things that, regardless of what anybody believes in Islam right now, if they ever see anything like that happen, a guy starting to claim to be the Messiah to the Jews or whatever, it uses phrases like, you must crawl over ice and glass to uh, go to war with this person. It is like a massive call to war against this particular Dijal, who they perceive as a fake Jewish messiah. That'll come into play later. So, that's interesting. But, here's another extremely interesting part. The, because of um, the idea that we know in Christianity quite well, that there are, that, that the messiah kind of has two main roles that he would play the Isaiah 53 kind of suffering servant, um, dying um, and resurrecting a Messiah, which, of course, we know very well. But he also has this uh, ruling and reigning and conquering and judging aspect. Now, for whatever reason, they have actually come up with a theory that seems to me to be extremely widely held. I can't put my finger on exactly how widely held this is, but when I hear everybody talk about it, it's almost like this is what they believe. I'm trying to distinguish here from this being like a very niche view that only a few Jews view uh, uh, believe, but from what I can tell, this is like a pretty well, certainly well known, and a pretty common belief among Jews of just about any kind of uh, of, of system about the Messiah. That is, if they at all believe in a, in a literal Messiah. And that is that there will be two Messiahs. 
That is, that's right, there are two messiahs according to Jewish eschatology. One is called Messiah ben Joseph, that is, Messiah the son of Joseph, and one is Messiah ben David, that is, Messiah the son of David. Um, Ben Joseph is the one we're going to look at pretty closely. I want to tell you a few things that they believe about Messiah ben Joseph. This is the guy that, according to Jewish eschatology, he comes first before Messiah ben David, and he does uh, a few things very uh, prominently. He is a military leader who conquers Israel's enemies, but he will be killed and then resurrected by Messiah ben David. Okay, so basically Messiah ben Joseph goes around and does all the conquering of Israel's enemies thing. He just he just destroys everybody, but he's actually killed by the Jewish Antichrist. That's Armulus. Now we got to talk about Armulus here in a minute, but um, right now let's just say that that the Messiah ben Joseph, in his warring against the enemies of Israel, he dies. He's killed by Armulus. And he then is resurrected. It's it's different kind of views. He lays in the streets of Jerusalem for a while, all this stuff. Uh, Some some people separate this and say that he's slain by Gog. There's a little bit of discrepancy here. This is a lot. Some people view the Gog Magog war as as the same thing as what Messiah Ben Joseph does in his military campaigns. by the way, I should just mention that when the Antichrist in Revelation 13 is lauded as Antichrist and worshipped, it is because who can make war with him? We know, even if you don't, if you can throw away the Daniel stuff altogether, we know from Revelation 13 that the Antichrist is a man that is revered because of his military might. Um, we could also go back to Daniel and some other less controversial verses and see. You know he's a he's a goddess god of fortresses, right? He 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 his military strength is is what he is interested in. Revelation thirteen talks about how Satan gives him the power and the ability to do this warfare. Nevertheless, so Messiah ben Joseph he does all this. Some say he's slain by Gog. Some people say that Gog is the same thing as Armelius or, or whatever. But they actually they do a number of things. They, they they prove Messiah ben ben David not just with uh, uh, Talmudic and other sources uh, that were written after that. They actually put point to a lot of scripture with him, particularly things like uh, well I could go into a number of them, but an interesting one for our purposes is Zechariah twelve ten. This is you know the, when when Israel in the end times mourns for the one that they've pierced. Now I don't have to explain to you that that's. That's the Jewish people actually accepting the real Messiah, Jesus Christ. But to them, they see that is, of course, not happening yet, since they reject Jesus as the Messiah. So this must be a future guy who is mourned when he's pierced. So what they interpret this as widely, and, and even people that disagree about the nature of Zechariah 12.10 in Judaism, all agree it's talking about Messiah ben David, this other Messiah. And they essentially say that this mourning for the ones who... They pierced, and they would say that they there is talking about the enemies of Israel, and and they're mourning for this Messiah after he has conquered their enemies, okay? But then he is resurrected, um, and I think that also should show something else to us that that the anti Messiah, the Antichrist, is not going to claim to be Jesus. If in fact anything like what I'm describing happens, then then the very nature that they really will believe that that this guy who 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 died after you know warring against uh, these the their enemies that they believe it's a, a fulfillment of Zechariah twelve ten mourning for him who they pierced and everything 
necessarily means that they don't believe that will be Jesus. Okay, so the the Messiah, this Messiah figure, the Antichrist, who will be somebody who's not going to claim to be Jesus. He's going to claim that Jesus. He's going to blaspheme Jesus. He's going to say Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Why? It's the same reason that they said back back, back there. How do we know if he's the Messiah or not? Well, he's got to do these things. Did Jesus do those things? Did he deliver them from their from their enemies? Did he start the temple sacrifices again and everything else? Uh, and the answer, of course, is no. I'd go into more detail there about the other things that he's supposed to do, uh, including getting all the world, the Gentiles, to then become Jews and then to, to flow into the uh, in this massive pilgrimage system to Israel to worship the Messiah, or rather, anyway. The point is, is that they believe that Jesus didn't do that, and it appears that that's, that's going to... Um, I need to say something else here at this point. I'm talking here about Jewish eschatology, you know, modern Jewish eschatology, and, I, and, in, and I'm also talking about uh, Islamic eschatology. And I think that it's important to distinguish here that they are not to be looked at necessarily as things that will come to pass, that there are oracles of any sort. I look at these things more or less as, and I'm just going to be quite honest, I think it's a little less uh, um, difficult if I just take the Muslim aspect of it and all this stuff about the Dajjal and, and the Mahdi and, and all this stuff. And I would just simply say that all that stuff is almost certainly directed by Satan, or at least you could admit that Satan, you know, would gladly and certainly be able to uh, construct, in the case of the Muslims, something like 600 years after the book of Revelation was written, you know, this stuff was written. So Satan had some time, if you will, to think about this whole thing. And if he got people to believe a false version of what the end times would look like, like a false version that would ultimately benefit him, that's what I'm talking about. And I would submit that, that we don't need to say that every single aspect of what they say is going to come to pass, whether it's Jewish eschatology uh, or Muslim eschatology. I think that's the fault of a lot of people like Joel Richardson, who just looks at the Muslim eschatology and says, well, that's it. That's exactly how this is all going to go down. So we just got to you know trade the names. You know, this is the false prophet is really Jesus and all Isa and all this stuff that he just sort of gives it way too much credibility, in my opinion. What I would suggest is actually happening here, based on what I'm about to discuss, is that all this is doing, the only thing it needs to do is start a particular war. Nothing else has to come to pass after that. It doesn't doesn't have to be accurate at all, but what it needs to do is set up a, 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 a war. And I'm telling you what, that is what this does. I can just go through a few scenarios here in a little bit and show you how this works, but this is like genius. It's a genius way to start a war that will ultimately make the real Antichrist look like he has delivered the world from their enemies and will be able to give him the only kind of validity he needs to really proclaim that he is in fact the Messiah, but we'll get to that. Okay, so his resurrection, that is the resurrection of Messiah ben Joseph, and he's he, he, that resurrection is what ultimately ushers in the Messianic era. Um, but only after some more killing. They have to also kill Armelius after that. So it's, it's an interesting thing. So so what what I want to point your attention to is, uh, well, another thing I want to mention before that. So he during this war where, where Messiah ben Joseph is, is killing all Israel's enemies uh, before he's killed by Armelius, he, he gathers Israel, you know, after sort of some of the stuff, and they're marching toward Jerusalem. But it's when he's marching towards Jerusalem and when he gets there that he comes to his end in Jerusalem. That's that's when he is killed, 
and he lies in the streets of Jerusalem for a while before he's resurrected. Now, if anybody's been following along in my Daniel study or uh, or just knows Daniel 11 pretty good, this should be uh, pretty shocking to you. Because basically what's, what's happening here is the exact same thing that that's supposed to happen with the Antichrist, okay? So in, in, in Daniel 11, 40, so let me just read it. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Okay, so what's interesting here, just to restate it, is that the king of the south, Egypt and the coalition there, they attack the Antichrist first. So whatever scenario we come up with, now, now keep in mind, it's obvious he completely destroys them. I mean, he's going to, uh, he's going to, uh, overwhelm them, basically. And we, but they attack first. So we see the, the, and that's the same thing we're going to see with the Arab world too. They attack him first, but then he completely destroys them. So, so the Antichrist is plain defensive here. He is, he has the, the moral high ground, if you will. He is being attacked by the king of the south, attacked by this massive Arab coalition, yet he destroys them. Okay, so, but, but then, um, uh, okay, so Daniel 11:41. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. A lot of people look at him entering the glorious land as him coming to conquer and destroy it, but that's something they're reading into the text. I think that uh, we're told here that he, he just enters the glorious land, he says many countries shall be overthrown and and we're given we're giving exactly the nature of those countries in the next line but these shall escape from his hand Edom Moab and the prominent people of Ammon this is this is if you look at you know Ammon is a huge city in Jordan right now probably the biggest city in the area but these are all muslim uh enemies of Israel currently it, it makes no sense i mean what i guess what i'm trying to say here is that his entering into Jerusalem is textually not not in aggression to Israel, but in aggression to Israel's immediate uh, Arab neighbors. Okay, but this is after he's already destroyed the macro neighbors. Okay, Egypt and the massive uh, king of the north and the king of the south, and now he enters into Israel and essentially essentially destroys all those like Jordan and those ones to, directly to its. Uh, but he, I, I should clarify. I think I keep saying that he destroys those people, but they actually escape from his hand for whatever reason. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, uh, but they are being pursued clearly. So he is against them. Uh, he shall stretch out his hand against countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold, silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north will trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury and destroy and annihilate many. Here it is. And then he shall plant his tents, the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So after these wars, okay, chronologically, we know he just got done doing the wars of the Antichrist. The, what 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 we all know the Antichrist will do. He's going to defeat Arab people for some reason. Um, and when he does, he will after right after that those wars. He plants his tents of his palace in what I would argue is Jerusalem, but nevertheless certainly in Israel. And he comes to his end, and no one will help him. Now a lot of people see this as you know the end of the Antichrist, but it's not. It's not so, because in 12.1, the next verse, it says, at that time, when you see something like that, that's a connection to the previous verse, okay? So we, we, at that time, is what time? It's a big question. What time is it? Well, it's the time it just got done talking about. This is the kind, this is the kind of thing 
I could go into other textual reasons like this. The connection of the time of the end uh, uh, verses that it says here. It, it's connecting them to, together. But it, it should be as clear as day. Daniel 12.1 is connected to Daniel, uh, the verse before it. So at that time, what time? The time that he comes to his end in Jerusalem. Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who's found written in the book. Okay, so before the delivering, this is kind of in fast forward with Daniel, because obviously there's a deliverance, but before there's a deliverance, there is a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Now this is a direct verbal connection to what Jesus warned us about and pointed to Daniel about. That is the abomination of desolation. It goes on. Daniel clarifies this a little later. He talks about the abomination of desolation in a little bit more. Daily sacrifice taken away. The abomination was set up. There shall be 1,290 days. All this stuff that he talks about. We, we know that this time of trouble is the beginning of the midpoint, the three and a half year period. So what I'm trying to say to you here is that what, what appears to be happening is that the Antichrist comes defeats Israel's enemies. He comes to Jerusalem um, to to deliver him from the, the more immediate enemies, yet he is killed. Yet th- at that point is when the three and a half year period starts. Okay? Now, we know that the Antichrist is apparently resurrected from the dead. Um, that is the reason why people worship him, worship him in Revelation 13. It becomes something of a title of the Antichrist. He who had the mortal wound, but was, uh, you know, the, the first beast who had the deadly wound that was healed. All this kind of language. It's, it's used so consistently of him. Um, uh, and I saw one of his heads had been mortally wounded. His deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, Revelation 13.3 there gives us the impression that among these people saying, uh, who is like the beast, who is able to make war with him. Then in the next verse, after they say uh, that the dragon gave authority to the beast, but it's this verse, Revelation 13.3, that says that it's because of his deadly wound being healed, the world is marveling and following him. Okay? So what I am suggesting here is that this is a really maybe coincidental, maybe not coincidental connection to what the Jewish people believe about the Messiah. They believe that the Messiah, Ben Joseph, will go fight all these wars, deliver people, deliver Israel from its enemies. He will then go to Jerusalem, but will be killed and then will be resurrected. And his resurrection ushers in the true messianic age. Now, this is the interesting part. Now, we know that the abomination of desolation, which occurs when the Antichrist sits in the temple, declares himself to be God begins the great tribulation. That is this great persecution on Jews and Christians. Um, those Jews who, who uh, refused to worship the false Messiah, those Jews who became Christians or at least refused to worship, uh, uh, and basically I would suggest anybody else that, uh, that uh, doesn't. But it certainly seems to be the followers of Jesus. When Jesus says to flee from the persecution started by the abomination of desolation, he says it's because of the, because of his name that they're going to be killed. So we know that they, that these people must in some way be Christians. I would, of course, as a pre-wrath person, uh, never say that we're going to go through the wrath of God, but this persecution of the Antichrist is not the wrath of God. That doesn't even make sense. It's against Christians uh, as opposed to the ungodly. But Nevertheless, that's uh, old news for, for many of you pre-rathers. But the point is that um, that we have this event occurring, and what I would suggest might be happening here is that 
when and if the Antichrist raises from the dead uh, after these wars. I think that part is is a consistent thing that we can tell happens uh, both from Revelation 13 that we mentioned that it's this warring Antichrist uh, who rises out of the sea at that point, uh, I would submit, as as the conglomerated Antichrist. Uh, so those of you that have seen the study that I did on Daniel 2, or particularly Daniel 7, know that uh, we see this conglomeration antichrist you know he's got the feet of the bear and the you know part leopard and part uh all the things that the part lion all the things that appeared in daniel uh uh um, seven all those different four beasts are now one beast so he, it's after he's already conquered all of those other people is when he gets this mortal head wound and is then worshiped so what i would say it's all fitting together that we see almost almost identically what what they're expecting a man to uh, destroy Israel's enemies, to then come to Jerusalem to die, then be resurrected. Now, there's a lot of things going on here. It's it's important to not minimize the importance of the resurrection in Jewish eschatology. It is a huge deal. Uh, no resurrection, no no dice, basically. And I think that the resurrection of the Antichrist does more to the Jewish mind than we give it credit for. That it is a a watershed event. Because in the same way that in Christian theology, Jesus' resurrection symbolizes to us and gives us the hope of our resurrection. We know that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And just like him, because he resurrected, we know and can hope also in a future resurrection. I think that there is a parallel that the Antichrist will, will play on there. And that's when his theology apparently changes a little bit, to say the least, at the midpoint. Now he's declaring himself openly to be God. He's doing a lot of things that you're not going to find in Jewish eschatology or whatever. This is where I think that um, that a lot of the different after the abomination of desolation, all bets are really off in terms of you know what he was telling the Muslims to do with their, their eschatology and all the setups that he was playing after the abomination of desolation. It, it would seem, and I would suggest to you, that the Antichrist doesn't care what you believe or whatever. The the coup d'état in his mind has already happened, and the persecution and the, the methods in which he has constructed in which to force people to worship him are then locked in. And it doesn't matter if you believe in Jewish eschatology, Muslim eschatology, Buddhist, whatever, you either worship him or you die, and he's got a system apparently to, to work that out. But I would submit that, um, that uh, if we go through this, there's a lot of interesting things here. The first, again, now coming back to this uh, Armelius guy. This is the, the Jewish Antichrist. Now, you probably haven't heard much about this guy, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, because Armelius is is basically, in when it was first sort of articulated, it was clearly supposed to be Christian. The Jewish Antichrist was Christian. Let me, well, you can interpret this however you want. Here's, here's a, one interesting view of it. At the beginning of the works, Rebbebel is summoned to what God, this is explaining what's in these texts. Uh, at the beginning of the works, Rebbebel is summoned to what God calls the house of disgrace, unmistakably a church, in order to learn about Armelius. There, an angel shows Zerubbabel a marble stat stone in the shape of a virgin, the beauty whose appearance was wonderful to behold, end quote, and explains that the statue, obviously representing Mary, is the mother of Armelius. Quote, the statue is the wife of the satanic figure Belial, the angel explains. Satan will come and lie with her, and she will bear a son named Armelius. Okay, so that's maybe one of the reasons why this isn't exactly the most popular, uh, discussed 
view about Jewish eschatology is that their Antichrist, according to this, is, you can see it as Jesus, or you can see it as the Christians. Now, I, I gotta say that I think that this, this, how this is interpreted in Jewish, in the Jewish view is elastic to a degree. I could, in the same way that I think that the Muslim view of the Antichrist is elastic to a degree. They, they don't, you know, I, in other words, I think that the Jewish view of Armelius, though it was certainly articulated as Christians, uh, at this time, and particularly about, you know, Jesus and, and everything, it's, um, it's certainly able to be made the Muslims in the future. But if it's not, let me give you a scenario that might actually explain some stuff that happens in how the abomination of event could actually spark a persecution against Christians. Because if now, uh, here, here's an interesting thing. I don't necessarily think that there will be two Messiah figures. I think there's just going to be one Messiah figure. And the reason I say that is because Daniel doesn't give us any hint. It's the same guy, according to Daniel. That is to say, the guy who, who does the previous wars, and then the guy who dies, and then the guy who does the abomination of desolation. It's all the same guy, according to Daniel. I mean, I, I think it's a possibility that something like that could happen or whatever. I would be willing to be wrong on that. But here's just one scenario that doesn't require it to be the two Messiahs. Um, what if the guy dies? Because here's an interesting thing, that they think that Messiah Ben David, will, who they believe to be sort of a, a better Messiah than Messiah Ben Joseph, he's going to resurrect, um, he's going to resurrect uh, 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 Messiah Ben Joseph. And, so, well, some, some versions have Elijah, the false, well, I would say the false prophet who they believe, believe is Elijah, um, that, that he is the one who resurrects um, Messiah ben Joseph. But in any case, I would say that we're not told in, in the Bible that, that anybody necessarily resurrects uh, uh, the Antichrist. He just seems to to do it. I mean, it certainly is possible that somebody else is involved in that. Uh, maybe Elijah or the false prophet. And I, I know I'm getting these names all confused because obviously this is a confusing sort of topic and I know I've probably said the wrong name a few times. But what if Nobody resurrects him, and he resurrects himself, as it were, you know, much like the Christian uh, uh, view. And it even says in three different kind of scenarios, Jesus resurrects himself. In another place, it says the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus. In another place, it says that God himself, the Father, resurrected Jesus. So there's sort of this really good apologetic for the Trinity in that uh, thing alone. But the point is, is that Jesus resurrects seemingly on his own. And I think that if... The, when the Antichrist resurrects, he does it on his own. He can make the case that that he is Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. He is both both of them at the same time. It's actually a lot better theology than their current view about two messiahs, because we know the correct view of Scripture is that it's the same guy, the suffering servant of Isaiah fifty three is the same guy who's going to rule with a rod of iron in the millennial age. It's the same guy. And so I think that having this guy do that is uh, the, the, the Antichrist actually resurrecting himself and then declaring that, hey, look, I am both of them. It's just me. I am Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. But I think that's when his theology apparently changes a little bit to also include him as divine, something that is not a part of Jewish eschatology. The Antichrist declaring himself to be God, or, excuse me, the, in their view, the Messiah declaring himself to be God is not, as far as I can see, a part of Jewish eschatology. So when the Antichrist does declare to be God, if he 
at the first three and a half years was the Messiah figure, this would be, it would be not consistent with Jewish eschatology. However, I think that the Antichrist has uh, a lot of scripture that he's going to be able to point to and say, look, the Messiah was God. And we, we would make the same apologetic argument from Scripture as Christians. We would say, look, the Messiah is God, and here's all these reasons why, why you can prove that Jesus was the, was the Messiah, obviously. Well, they wouldn't say that. They would say that the Messiah was God. So he can prove that from Scripture is what I'm saying. So what he does in the temple by declaring himself to be God is, is not without scriptural support, if you will. Of course, he's not really God, but, and he's not really the Messiah, but he's got a leg to stand on scripturally, if you will. But here's the thing. So after this resurrection, what's interesting about Jewish eschatology is it's not over. Armelius still has to be killed in order to usher in the utopian messianic age. Now, I tend to believe, based on Daniel, that Armelius, and it could be maybe this Gog Magog, as I mentioned, some of them view Gog different than Armelius. So there could be that they will, that the Antichrist will sort of explain one of them is Gog and one of them is Armelius. But in any case, it's the, it's the idea that they still need to kill Armelius after the resurrection, which I would say happens just before the, the midpoint, just before the abomination, which then begins the persecution of Christians, could be worked into this, okay? So he, when he sits in the temple, declares himself to be God, um, that's the moment that this, that Judea becomes the most dangerous place in the world for Christians and, and presumably spreads out across the whole world. I think a lot of people view that as like everybody's leaving Jerusalem because they're scared of this guy, but that's not what the Bible says. Jesus is saying, look, you guys, my sheep that are still in Jerusalem out of there, at that point, you run and you don't look back because it's going to get nasty in there. There's no reason to run unless a whole bunch of people didn't think that that was very blasphemous and didn't think that him sitting in the temple was abomination, but thought it was actually, you know, something to do something about. That is to apparently somewhere around there, if not at that point, the Antichrist then decrees a killing of Christians, which I think that he can tie into this Armelius idea. I don't want to push that too strongly. That's just, a, I, I don't want the, you to take away from this podcast that, that the Jewish Antichrist is apparently, you know, Christian, because I don't think that that's really the, the biggest thing. What I think the biggest thing is, is the idea of the, the two Messiah idea of Messiah ben Joseph doing exactly what Daniel 11 says the Antichrist will do. Exactly the same thing. That's messed up. Now, <clears throat> let's see what else. Um, Messiah ben David, uh, we've already talked about him a pretty pretty good amount. We've already talked about Armelius. Here's another interesting thing that I just uh, just as a footnote: vegetarianism. Apparently, Jewish eschatology believes that when Messiah comes back, everybody will be vegetarian. They view this probably, you know, with good reason because we've got the, and maybe it will be so in the in the real in the real actual millennial reign, but they have a belief in their eschatology that when he comes back, people will be vegetarians because, uh, in, you know, in the old days, uh, they, they would submit that it was, I'm not sure about that. But what I would say is that when the lion eats straw and all this stuff that Isaiah predicted and everything about how no longer will the animals be, um, eating meat. So they have concluded that in the millennium that we won't either, that everything that the relationship between, 
you know, animals and humans will be rightly restored or something like that. Which is interesting, of course, because of the phrase, and I think it's First Timothy that says, in the last days they will forbid to eat meat, which is a really weird thing to say, that in the last days there's going to be a prohibition against eating meat. Now, I wouldn't carry that too far because at the other end of the spectrum, it says it will also, in addition to apparently a forced vegetarianism in the end days, there is a forbidding to marry. And that is not spoken about in Jewish eschatology. In fact, quite the opposite. People are supposed to have like hundreds of thousands of kids and stuff like that. So it's it's not, that doesn't make any sense. But it's just an interesting footnote. Okay, let's try to put it together as best we can. I think that the Muslim and Jewish eschatologies are linked for the purpose of starting a war that makes the Antichrist uh, look like the Jewish Messiah and fulfill all the things that the Jewish Messiah needs to do. Um, so basically, here's some interesting things. If you if you think about this, and I would say that 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 Messi- messianic sort of fervor historically in in Jewish thought has always centered around uh, external events that begin to start happening whether it is, you know, an impending war with somebody. So I'm going to throw out a few scenarios here, and I don't really know, of course, if any of them are going to happen, but I just want to throw around some scenarios. So what if either the beginning of some wars started to happen that were really important in, uh, like, in the the Six-Day War and all this stuff, Messianic uh, views when, you know, at at Emancipation and stuff like that in 6748 were extremely high. Um, we already mentioned Bar Kokhba and all these other, other people, but they all came at these crucial times when their oppression from the Romans in the case of Bar Kokhba was really, really high or, or all kinds of false messiahs and stuff like that came in different times like that. But they also uh, show up when certain uh, things that they believe to be omens about rebuilding the temple and things like that start to show up. So we've heard about you know red heifers and stuff like that. So, or the Ark of the Covenant is what I would say. I would submit this, that... And I keep saying the Ark of the Covenant has something to do with it, but you need to know that I have actually absolutely no biblical reason to say this, but let's just say the Ark of the Covenant was found. That would be viewed by the Jews as a sign that they needed to rebuild the temple, which, of course, would start a major conflict, or at least the beginnings of one, if even the thought of rebuilding the temple, which got serious, because now they believe God's on their side, here the Ark of the Covenant is found, we got to do this now. Um, and so then the tensions get high, but the messianic fervor gets high as well. This begins because it's tied to what the Muslims have said that that's part of their eschatology. When you start to see this stuff happening, the Ark of the Covenant, you start to see uh, a, a person, people starting to act like messiahs. Because I think that when Jesus says at the end times, he says people will come and say, "I am the Messiah," but believe it not, and they say, "Come and look at you know in the wilderness, don't don't go and all this stuff." But he also says, in addition to the Messiah, he also says false messiahs and false prophets, which seemingly plural. And what I think of when I hear that is that we first of all need to recognize that that's a part of the end times, that there are multiple false messiahs and multiple false prophets. Okay, but what I would suggest that can be explained by is an intense period of messianic fervor in Israel for some external reason, whether it is a threat from a war or something like the Ark of the Covenant being found or some kind of reason that makes the temple uh, rebuilding like the top of everybody's list, okay? You do that, if that happens for any reason, then you've got people showing up saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, because 
messianic uh, – that's just how in, historically messianic expectations have worked. Okay, you see external events, you see people popping up trying to be the Messiah. Okay, so so what I'm saying is that that, that one thing, you could just do one thing and let the in-place eschatologies – uh, they're, they're like a magnet. They w- will have to attract and start the, the, the clock. Okay. So again, you, you do this one thing. Let's, let's say again, whatever it is, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, because of the eschatology in place in the Muslims, they are compelled by the greatest commandment in all. I mean, most of the stuff that the, in the Muslim world about fighting against the Jews and all this stuff, it's not like a general fighting against the Jews. Like you need to kill them wherever they are. It's all like, in the last days, in this particular war, that's when, you, if you see a, a, a Jew behind a tree, the tree will say that he is behind me and all this stuff. That's like in the context of this war that must be fought by all Islam when they start to see a guy starting to be the Messiah and all this stuff. So they are primed and ready if ever that happens. Now, if you if you start to see even just a few false messiahs as a result of the external things, whatever it is, the Ark of the Covenant, that, again, is the thing that they're supposed to look for. Anybody ever claiming to be a false a messiah to the Jews, especially in, in the whole thing, that's like, you know, especially in the context, I guess I should say, of, you know, uh, 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 wars and all this other stuff, is like a absolute mandate for them to fight. Now, that exact scenario is what is in the Jewish eschatology to command them to fight at all costs, okay? So what the Jewish people are looking for is what will then happen as a result of the initial thing that, again, I would say geopolitically, is. And if the Antichrist had one thing to do, it's just reveal the, the Ark of the Covenant at the proper time. If That's all he had to do to start this thing in motion. And because that cues the... Islamic people accuse the messianic uh, expectations and the false messiahs, which then cues because uh, the minute that the Jewish people see the Muslim world all excited and, and about to go to war with them, then they interpret that of what their modern eschatology says, that that's the key to the end times, that w- that's the birth pangs of the Messiah, the wars that Ben Joseph needs to fight. OK, and so so you see, and it makes Daniel make sense why the Muslim world attacks um, that attacks the Antichrist first because they're, man, like I say, they are ready to fight if that happens. They're told, climb over glass to fight this war. So they will attack first and he will destroy them. And then another group will attack and he will destroy them. And after he's destroyed those big guys, he's going to do what Messiah Ben Joseph does. He goes to Israel to essentially present himself as Messiah, but is killed, is then resurrected. Then the abomination of desolation starts and then the killing of Christians starts. It is a very interesting tale, um, and obviously I haven't put it all together yet. It's still quite random. I uh, applaud you for making it through this podcast if you did. Um, I don't know when and if I will ever put this down in a uh, in a nice, neat package. I certainly will try for this upcoming book, um, but I just wanted to get it off my chest and throw it out there. If you have any thoughts about it, reasons why it can't happen. Uh, if you think it's a probable theory, if it's, you know, off, I need to hear about it now. As I said before, before I, you know, go, I say go on record here, I am going on record, but uh, in, a, in a more concise way. I think that it's been traditional that I sort of do these ranting podcasts before I even get anything cohesive done. So 
Okay, I guess that's it. I want to remind everybody to subscribe on iTunes to the Bible Prophecy Talk feed. If you're interested in any of this, there'll be uh, more upcoming. Also, to subscribe to the newsletter if you're interested at the website, Bible Prophecy Talk. And I guess that's it. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.